from the National Project on Race and Capitalism. Welcome to Season 2 of New Dawn, a podcast focusing on the intersection of race and capitalism, its theories, histories and geographies, with your host, Michael Dawson. It's my pleasure to welcome Destin Jenkins, who will be joining the History Department as an Assistant Professor of U.S. History at the University of Chicago in the summer of 2018. Jenkins' research centers on the linkages between the American state, capitalism, racial inequality, and the built environment in the 20th century. His first book, tentatively titled Bonded Metropolis, Debt, Redevelopment, and Racial Inequality in Postwar San Francisco, will argue that the practices of municipal debt finance redistributed wealth upwards, reinscribed racial inequality, and became a constraint on democratic state power. Trained at Columbia and Stanford universities, he was a postdoctoral fellow at Harvard University's Charles Warren Center for Studies in American History in 2016 to 17. It's great to have you here. I'm delighted to be here. So how did you become interested in race and capitalism? Um, I think it goes back to 2008. Obviously, the financial crisis has been so influential in terms of people's scholarship. And it, and it certainly was for me. I'm dating myself a little bit. I was an undergraduate at Columbia University. And the striking scene was that I had family, neighbors, friends who uh, were losing their homes, uh, losing their jobs. Uh, it was the, the foreclosure crisis, obviously, that stood out especially and, and the lesson there was that the the institutions about which you know little the individuals you've never met can radically reshape day to day for black and brown peoples and that was that was really important to me to kind of think through because basically credit rating agencies and financial institutions you know I had never learned about them right they were sort of external to the world that I knew and clearly they had a hand in the day-to-day -day for black life. So at that point in time, though, I had an interest in political economy. And, and that's actually something I would love to hear your thoughts about later in terms of thinking about the discourse around political economy and now the emphasis on calling it capitalism, right, identifying capitalism. But at the time, I saw political economy as, in, as critical to, uh, to black life. I wrote a thesis that looked at African-American perceptions of China during the early 20th century. So thinking about how Du Bois is extending his mm -hmm. talented 10th philosophy to make sense of Japanese imperialism how you have people like A. Philip Randolph, journalist Chatwood Hall, who are calling for black Americans to adopt the boycott in ways similar to the Chinese. So they're, but they're very much engaged with political economic questions. But at the time, it was the financial crisis and political economy that's the sort of gravitational pulls. And then, you know, when I got to graduate school, that's when this new history of capitalism started to percolate. And there were some people who didn't talk about race at all still st and still, still, still <laughs> ignore race entirely. And even when people did discuss race, it was often seen as incidental to something, quote unquote, more fundamental. 
right? So class, economic interests. And then in other instances, race was sort of treated as a almost like a thing summoned by bankers who were simultaneously imagined as rational actors and bad apples. But again, it's this summoning, right? This existing outside of the system of capitalism. And so for me, the, the question was I, was, I was clearly unconvinced by that. But methodologically, if race is not an externality, not an aberration, where might we specify the locus of race in the history of capitalism? And that's the kind of journey I've been on since then. That's interesting because when I went to grad school, and you shouldn't talk about dating yourself when I'm in the room. Because <laughs> that, that puts me somewhere in the Jurassic. <laughs> but I had come back to school after working in the community in communities for several years and was interested in political economy and somewhat in capitalism and certainly in economic systems and their interactions with race and because of my activism race was always sort of central mm-hmm. for me mm-hmm. but so, but very much tied to some uh, to critique of capitalism as well but when I got to grad school, I was told by the graduate secretary of all people. No, actually, this was after grad school. I was my first job at Michigan. I was told by the graduate secretary, nobody studies political economy. Only Marxists do that. Mm-hmm. With the clear implications, there aren't any Marxists here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, both political economy and obviously Marxism were off the table right. for polite scholars, which I never really was. But in grad school, it was slightly different because political economy was becoming reappropriated, is probably the mm. better word, mm. by rational choice theories, theorists, and economists. So the, ide- the ideal of political economy was something very different than the way I understood political economy, like the political economy as someone like Marx or others might think, think of it. So to me, it was interesting to see, one, the cultural turn in leftist studies where people talked a lot about capitalism but didn't know very much economics. And second, and I had studied a fair amount of economics in grad school, and second then seeing with the turn to capitalism studies, particularly outside of history in in political theory, in discussions of neoliberalism and the, the conquest of the economics that were democratic forms, I once again, the submergence of race, even when sometimes when gender would be considered and patriarchy as systems of domination that had to be considered central to how to understand capitalism, race could still be totally left off the the map. Yeah, I mean, mean, and you know, what's really interesting is, well, there was so much there. First is thinking about the trajectory of the study of, of political economy within black studies. And someone like a German historian, Jürgen Koka, has traced the, the kind of intellectual history of the usage of the term capitalism, right? Mm-hmm. The kind of becoming a dirty word, a bad word. What I found when I, was in, when I was in graduate school was scholars who studied race often treated capitalism as the kind of backdrop. It was a prop. And then when the new history of capitalism started to emerge of uh, 2008, the 2008 financial crisis, it was capitalism, right, as a historical process that was the subject of inquiry, but race then became the, the prop, if it was cited or, or referenced at all. What I'm trying to figure out is, is, again, what's the locus, right? So someone like Sarah Haley, whose work I greatly admire, looks for racial capitalism in the realm of labor and ideology. We can think about Peter Hudson, who looks at patterns of racial thought. For me, the built environment has become a critical site for the intersections of race and capitalism. So I'm excited about your work, Michael, and the work of so many others interested in these questions, because 
when we actually take the relationship between race and capitalism seriously, what we'll find is that someone like Manning Marable differs greatly from Abram Harris, who differs greatly from Walter Rodney, who differs greatly from Cedric Robinson. There's a tradition, but it's not a unified tradition at right. all. Extraordinarily heterogeneous. Absolutely. And, but we miss all of that, right, when we strictly see race as race in terms of identity, strictly mm-hmm. speaking, yeah. race as a prop for capitalism or summoned by capitalists. And and that's what I'm excited to, to really see. Not at all definitive. And, and these are the debates that I think we have to have. One of the aspects of your of your work that you just mentioned is the question of racial capitalism, and how it plays out in the built environment, the spatial element. Your work very much thinks about questions of debt, financialization, within the context of urban renewal in the U.S. after World War II. One of the points you make in the paper that I read recently of yours is that scholars of urban renewal sometimes pick up one or two of the aspects of racial capitalism within the quote-unquote Negro removal process, but that there's at least three that we should be paying attention to, one of which is often not studied at all. Could you say more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So so the thesis is what I call, call the triple profitability of, of urban racial capitalism, uh, racial capital derived from racial segregation. We can think about uh, ethnic and racial enclave economies. I focus specifically on San Francisco, but they're in New York, obviously, when we think about Chinatowns and so forth. The second element is racial capitalism through redevelopment, right? The compensation of, of slumlords who have subdivided Victorians and townhomes and, and created what I call a kind of sardinification, right? The sardine deaning like of black people into these once gorgeous homes. I've lived in some of those. Yeah. <laughs> in the sardine part, reversion yeah. of it. <laughs> I was going to say, not not in today's San Francisco. They, they don't, no, but they, it's in Chicago. We yeah. saw the same thing. So that that means of accumulation in terms of compensating, paying fair market value to the owners of these of these blighted properties. But the third piece, racial capital through urban renewal debt obligations. Oftentimes, especially in the field of urban studies, urban history, scholars will talk about federal funds, right? It becomes a kind of catchphrase to, to basically in some instances refer to intergovernmental transfer payments from the federal government to localities and federal funds becomes a slogan and actually you had urban renewal agencies what I call municipal debtors a variety of municipal debtors issue debt obligations that were purchased by oftentimes commercial banks who supplied an initial line of credit $12 million, $15 million, the renewal agency would use that line of credit, really a debt obligation, and clear entire neighborhoods. And they would promise tax-exempt interest income to the holders of the debt obligation. And we see this for urban renewal, but also public housing projects as well. That's mm-hmm. financed by long-term bonds. There's there's a difference, though, between public housing debt and, say, urban renewal debt. Public housing debt, there are no statutory limitations on the interest rate. Whereas for urban renewal and also, of course, debt issued by cities, there's a statutory limit in terms of interest rates. So what you're talking about, public housing becomes an incredible means of acute capital accumulation for those investors, fire and casualty insurance companies, wealthy individuals who are looking to shield their capital from high federal marginal tax rates in the post-World War II period. So the way of hedging. It's a way of hedging. It's a, what I like to call a kind of, that point in time, a precursor to today's tax 
offshore accounts in places like Panama and elsewhere. So instead of the Caymans, we have Robert Taylor Holmes <laughs> yes, two miles exactly, from where we're sitting. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And then, of course, thinking about debt service payments, right? And who, who gets priority, right? And we can talk about this with regards to Puerto Rico later, but thinking about interest, tax-exempt interest income payments always going to creditors. They have to be paid rain, hail, sleet, or snow. And what does that do for the housing authority who has to make improvements, maintenance, and so forth? Do they skimp on the infrastructural improvements in order to make sure that bondholders are paid. So that's the kind of redistributionary story that I trace in my own work. But again, with regards to urban renewal, that's the kind of triple profitability uh, that I talk about in the essay. But when James Baldwin is talking about goes to San Francisco in this wonderful documentary, Take This Hammer, in the spring, I believe, of 1963, he says to Orville Luster, a social worker, he says, you know, I suspect all of this has something to do with money. It's an incredibly acute observation. And so what the paper, what I try to do is think about, well, what were the varieties with the various means of a capital accumulation? Like I said, in one instance, it's through redevelopment. I and mean, the second is through debt obligation. And it's interesting to me. I, I spent a lot of time in the Bay Area. I lived there. The assault on the Western edition that mm-hmm. you that you uh, described was well underway. And my wife was Japanese-American, so we spent a lot of time in Niomanchi, J- Japantown. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was really different how different neighborhoods, and we'll talk about this in a second, different neighborhoods were t- treated differently, even if they might not be white neighborhoods. What has struck me, particularly after talking to colleagues last week in Calif- Southern California, is how this process has in- has developed over 30 to 40 years. So a lot of the b- black folks who were in San Francisco, except for the ones in Hunter's Point, which mm. you mentioned, mm-hmm. sort of got stuck for a second, at least come to the developer's point of view, went to Oakland. Mm-hmm. They went to Oakland, East Palo Alto. Mm-hmm. Now, East Palo Alto is the only place, when I lived in East Palo Alto, it was a slum. Mm-hmm. East Palo Alto now has the only four seasons in the Bay Area. I lived in Oakland for a long time, and I've been told I wouldn't recognize it anymore. And, the, and one of the things that you, from the Baldwin quote is, where do these folks go? Where, well, where rents are cheap. Well, that became increasingly nowhere inside the, the proper Bay Area. It became, you know, either south of San Jose or over the hills mm-hmm. into, you know, in Orinda and places like that, where you're not even in the Bay Area anymore, technically. Yeah, and, and, and I guess in many ways, so I, I did my doctorate at, at Stanford University, so I lived in San Francisco. I'm a Stanford dropout. <laughs> <laughs> I, lived, I lived in the Haight-Ashbury for a little while, uh, of course, lived in Palo Alto. And so this was the moment in time where you had the Google bus shuttles, right, appropriating mm-hmm. public space, debates around gentrification. And being from New York, obviously, I was familiar to, with that discussion as well, except instead of hipsters, we had techies, right, as the agents of displacement. Yeah. And so, you know, from my own research, what I've found, and, and I, I don't make this argument very much because I'm not as invested in this project, but seeing what Baldwin called, again, Negro removal as an early chapter in the history of gentrification. Right? Yes. It's a pivotal chapter. Absolutely. And not just a pivotal chapter, but when we focus on, or we imagine urban renewal as an as a early form of gentrification, it forces us to prioritize the state. 
and it forces us to look at its relationship to private capital, which really, in my, my opinion at the time at least, totally missing from analysis of contemporary gentrification, which strictly focused in on techies, right? Seeing it as the, as the outgrowth of individual choice and at the other extreme articulated by, by the late Neil Smith, right? The logic of capital. So it was either an abstraction or it was a liberal account of individual actors displacing black But those Google people. bus have to have work under a regulatory regime, right? Exactly. Exactly. The state's there Absolutely. and is enabling all of this in one, or not enabling in one way or the other. Which, re, which leads me to my next question. One of the points you talk about in terms of some of these development agencies is how they became increasingly, I think the phrase you use, no longer democratically accountable. How did the lack of democratic accountability lead to both the financialization of the urban renewal process, but also the racial remaking of, an, of San Francisco? Wow, it's a terrific question. So let me take the first piece in terms of democracy, democratic accountability. So what I have in mind here is, is kind of two pieces. First, I'm thinking about Du Bois and this idea of democratic despotism, which he expresses mm-hmm. in the essay, The African Roots of War. And this idea that the expansion of a social wage in the global north, he might have said, uh, for this kind of compact between a united labor and a united capital is predicated on the dispossession of people in the, quote, unquote, darker lands, right? Um, so, and that's that form of democratic despotism, right? The expansion of democracy along despotic lines. Uh, in a similar way, that's what I see in San Francisco, right? Is that in order for, for San Franciscan officials to remake the Western edition, to build high-rise apartments, to build cafes, to allow businesses to penetrate the area. It's predicated first on the dispossession of black renters, Japanese renters. So that's what I, that's, that's what I mean by democracy in, at one level, I mean, is that kind of paradox there. At another level, just in terms of the governing structure of these agencies and authorities, appointed officials, to whom are they accountable? It's never really clear. They're allowed to issue debt obligations that don't require voter approval, which in that sense makes those debt obligations quite different from the debts issued by the general obligation bonds in particular issued by the city of San Francisco or some other city whereby mm-hmm. voters have to, to sort of weigh in and turn up to the, to the polls and decide whether or not to take on debt. So democracy in, in that level is, or at that level is, is I'm thinking about it in terms of governance and the ability of the electorate to have a over whether or not debt is issued at all, whether or not debt then becomes a means of redistribution upwards, um, and then what happens to that once once an agency, the San Francisco Renewal Agency, for example, is able to issue debt without democratic oversight, it then can use borrowed funds to enact the paradox that I previously discussed. Yeah. One of the other, you you mentioned, for example, displacement of Um, Japanese renters and black renters in the Western edition. So one of the points that you just brought up is how there was a displacement of Japanese and black renters in San Francisco in the post-World War II period over a period of overall several decades, but some of it in more intense periods than others. But you also talk about that we have that the binary, the black-white binary, is extremely unusual. Either an- analytically, it doesn't make much sense as a historian or a social analyst when you look at the ground. Can you talk a little bit about why you think the binary is not very useful, and maybe think about mm-hmm. it in terms of how different populations, non-white populations in San Francisco, fit into the sort of new scheme of racial capitalism that was mm-hmm. that was built? Mm-hmm. Michael, Michael. 
these are hefty, wonderful questions. So, so the first piece in terms of the black-white binary, I mean, it just is, you know, you could just look at it from a demographic standpoint. In 1940, the black population in San Francisco was, is less, less than 5,000 people. It's minuscule. And they're, most of the African Americans are concentrated in the Western edition. So mm -hmm. you can look at the, the, uh, the wonderful Mapping Inequality Project that one of my advisors, Nathan Conley, has, has put, in so much work in, put so much work into. You can look at the, the kind of Homeowners Loan Corporation redline, so-called redlining maps. Read the description of the Western edition, the Fillmore area. And the description is, this is the real, quote unquote, melting pot of San Francisco. And they, they mean it pejoratively. They're talking about they're <laughs> not talking, the democratic dream no. not at all right <laughs> and they're talking about the presence of african-americans and japanese folks in in the area of course they see it as a fundamental threat to the to the property values of adjacent neighborhoods especially those north of the western edition but you're really only talking about two thousand african-americans god it, we're powerful it's, it's, <laughs> it's like uh, you ever you ever see that that commercial i think it's maybe the dos Equis commercial where it's a sort of like have you seen this guy he's a shortish tallish guy he's got lightish darkish hair you know he's between 50 pounds and 800 pounds, right? In other words, right, this is the threat that constantly evolves. It, it need yes. not take a large population to, to constitute the threat. So anyway, the point, the point, though, is that the black population is incredibly small going into the, the 1940s. They're predominantly working class, am I right about that? Working class. Um, you have wonderful work from Albert Broussard, um, who was basically looked at. These people are porters, domestic workers. Mm -hmm. um, and so going into World War II, or the, I should say the 1940s, very small black population. But yet deep history of racial animosity, a deep history of racialization. It just doesn't revolve, strictly speaking, around a black-white binary. And so from that standpoint alone, in terms of demographics and the late 19th anti-Chinese politics in San Francisco and California more generally, forced me to think beyond the black and white binary. Yes. But then the next question, though, is... What happens when African-Americans migrate and settle in San Francisco in a city that wasn't defined along a black-white axis? So by 1972, you're talking about close to 90,000 African-Americans in the city. That's a tremendous difference over the course of 30 years. So what happens to the racial hierarchy? And for my purposes, how does, does the shifts, the reconfigurations in the racial hierarchy contribute to capital accumulation? So one of the other aspects that's related to the different processes of racialization you're describing is what I think I may have stole this from you, if not you from somebody, somebody else, segmented inclusion. And this, the segmented inclusion is along different lines. One, different racial and ethnic groups are included in the economy differently. But you have these wonderful examples as well, how black folks are very much included in some parts of the economy and not in others. Could you describe how those differences work and those processes work? Sure. So we can think about, you sort of think about the work from Nathan Conley, right? Thinking about a black segregated enclave economy. And, and not even just Nathan's work. I mean, you think about, again, Abram Harris. You could think about Manning Marable, who says that the heyday of black capitalism, the golden age of black capitalism, occurs in the context of Jim Crow. Or, or, or St. Clair Drake and, and Horace Keegan. Right. I mean, you're, you're thinking about funeral parlors, barbershops. Yep. And so I basically take that kind of concept, right? I'm pushing back on the idea of Jim Crow as a kind of totalizing system, right? That like is crushing and oppressive. And of course, many people don't 
say that, certainly not the scholars, but common perception might might imply that. Pushing back on that to say that in that in the context of Jim Crow segregation, you have a flourishing segregated enclave economy. African Americans are confined to a handful of neighborhoods in post-war San Francisco, and in that context, you have African American bar owners, club owners, and so forth. That becomes a means of accumulation through a segregated enclave economy. The same is true in Chinatown, except that following World War II, and this is the relates to the kind of Cold War context, right, and China becoming a friend, right? What is the, the, the great book from Charlotte Brooks? Uh, kind of thinking about post-World War II Chinatown and thinking uh, you have statements from police chief Cahill uh, in San Francisco who sees Chinatown as a real economic asset, right? Mm-hmm. So you have the recalibration of the Chinese as an internal liability to, to property values, to seeing, seeing Chinatown as a crucial piece to the tourist economy. And in that sense, and I make the, the point in the essay, blackness had not been commodified in, in that way, right? No. Blackness was commodified certainly in, in other ways, not in ways similar to what we see in Chinatown. Not spatially in the same way. It, was, it wasn't a destination. Right. The Fillmore was a destination for other black people coming right. in town. Absolutely. But not for white tourists. Absolutely. And so in that sense, I, I like what you said, segmented inclusion is a, is a terrific way to think about it. So you see the persistence of a segregated enclave economy in Chinatown precisely because it is important to the overall economy of San Francisco. That same argument is not made with regards to the Black Fillmore. And so what we see instead with the Black Fillmore is the destruction of a segregated enclave economy. And in that sense, that kicks off the other two tranches of racial capital accumulation. Again, as, as, as I mentioned earlier, capital accumulation to the holders or owners of blighted property and cap, racial capital accumulation through debt. Think about the third tranche again. It, one of the questions I've been trying to puzzle through in my work is the, how to think about the articulation of, of systems of domination and forms of domination, whether by race or by gender or by class. It's the way that a lot of people think about it, obviously. And one of the examples I found interesting in your essay is that in 1964, you have Proposition 14. California is very good about having democratic processes that increase racial oppression. And Prop 14 was one of the early, mid-20th century examples, Mm -hmm. which was trying to repeal, if I understand, remember correctly, essentially affirmative action housing or Mm -hmm. fair Mm housing, to be more precise, fair housing, not affirmative Mm -hmm. action, fair Mm -hmm. housing. Mm -hmm. This is one of the ways that Ronald Reagan made his career first in that campaign, then as governor, and of course, eventually as the president we all know and study. But what I found interesting, which is one of those things that say, oh, yeah, of course, but of course you don't know that until somebody studies it and analyzes it, is that... Mm. California capitalists, the, these, these debt-issuing agencies, lost their assets to federal capital when 64 passes, right? Mm-hmm. Because the federal government says you have to, you don't ha- we don't care what you do on the ground, but you can't have anything on the books that's, an- that's discriminatory on Absolutely. race. Right. It seems that for, I mean, is this a fair analysis or do you want to push back on this some? That for much of the period you're looking at, Logics of white supremacy and logics of capitalism work hand-to-hand in ways that benefit various interests, not black or other non, non-white folks, but certainly 
capitalist interests and maybe the interests of those interested in maintaining white supremacy. But there's sometimes there's friction. Yeah. And so that is sometimes helpful when we think about racial capitalism. We realize that we're also there's some friction in, inherent within that as well. That all that, that the, the logics of white supremacy don't necessarily, or for that matter, the logics of patriarchy doesn't don't necessarily line up all the time with the logic of capitalism. Is that a reasonable way to think about that episode? It is. Uh, it is. And, and you know, just just let me flesh that out uh, just a little bit, because because in the essay, there's, there's sort of a, there's a counterfactual here that, that I raise. Right. It's with Proposition 14, the federal government says we we you know, they put a hold basically on the ability of urban renewal agencies within California to continue uh, urban renewal projects, especially new projects. What I argue is that 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 delay, that two year delay means that renewal agencies miss the boat of low borrowing costs, mm-hmm. right? So that by next, by the time the funds are, are released, or rather by the, by the time renewal agencies are able to turn again to the municipal bond market to borrow, it's at sky high interest rates. Right, right. almost um, two or three times what they were originally abso- before the- Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So in that sense, that, that of course works against those who would see the need to renew central cities, right? I mean, and there's a friction there, but it's not too much of a friction because you have those who insist on Prop 14 and the right to privately to discriminate in the realm of private housing. And it would seem then that, okay, well, California renewal agencies are now cut off from the bond market, but creditors could look elsewhere because there's a plethora of debt obligations, high-yielding, tax-exempt interest income debt obligations. So in, a, in one sense, it's a, it's a loss for the investors, probably the smaller investment banks who, based off of their distributive capacities, probably only specialized in California debt. So maybe uh, the absence of urban renewal agencies specializing or issuing debt in California for California redevelopment projects might have lost out. But again, there were so many debt obligations that Prop 14 didn't really didn't really matter all too much for them. One of the consequences you just mentioned was a much higher price for capital after those two years. And mm-hmm. you talk about how it, around 1966 it led to a urban municipal financial crisis, at least a mini-crisis, that, of course, a few years later, in the early to mid-1970s, it becomes a full-blown urban crisis. What about the financial crisis that we see starting to develop in the mid-1960s and then really then develops over the next decade into something much more serious? What parallels and what differences are there between the 2008 financial crisis mm-hmm. and the impact on black and brown neighborhoods that we've seen now? One thing we'll see we see with the 1966 financial crisis it really is a cost to borrow problem of the cost to borrow for debtors, and so one of the consequences delayed bond offerings, which means the inability to receive capital or to invest capital in schools in parts of Cleveland. So now what we're really kind of thinking about here, and this is just a personal aside, is. I grew up in Queens, New York. My parents sent me to a private school. And one of their arguments, they later explained, was, was thinking about the physical infrastructure of the school. 
So we can think about the kind of dilapidated conditions, the faulty roofs, the leaks, the, the poor windows and so forth as, as kind of having its, it's not, it's not, it's, it can't be directly traced to the fiscal crisis of 1966, but it certainly has a lot to do with it because school districts and cities more generally are forced to delay bond offerings because of the cost to borrow. And actually, I, I borrow a term from your work, right? Linked fate. So with 1966, we see the linked fate of municipal debtors because they all depend on the municipal bond market <laughs> to borrow. Right. So what we see in Cleveland is akin to what we see in San Francisco, what we, to what we see in New York. So there's a kind of linkage of fate between debtors precisely because they depend on the municipal bond market to finance this critical infrastructure. The 2008 financial crisis is not the same kind of linkages. Right. Right? It's because what we're talking, we're not talking about a, a problem per se of cities. We're talking about homeowners, right? In a sense, it's a kind of fragmentation of the problem that then creates problems for the city in which those foreclosed, foreclosed homes are located. So it's a different kind of linkage that I see. And in the, in, again, in the late 1960s, it has has extreme reverberations. The, the cost of borrow, I should say, has profound reverberations for municipal debtors. What's interesting about that is bankers view it entirely different. For them, they see it as, one, a problem of too many high-quality, high-volume securities, and they don't have the personnel to possibly purchase, underwrite, and resell. Their force is a recalibration away from long-term debt obligations because why should, should a banker or an investor purchase a bond today that might yield me 4% when given the rising interest rates next month, I might get 4.2%. So what they do is they start to shift to short-term securities. So now debtors are perpetually borrowing every six months, every 12 months, refunding older debt at higher and higher interest rates. In that sense, all of that, I think, is quite different from the 2008 financial crisis because the linkages are, are, are different. So this is going to be a misuse of the language, but that won't be new for me. I have two penultimate questions. They're similar in structure, if not in content. One is that your work, I think, points very strongly to the necessity for scholars and other analysts to pay central attention to the state as a prime actor and when we think through the materiality and processes of racial capitalism. What should that mean for our scholarship? Mm -hmm. The second penultimate question is this particular essay is you as focus, mm -hmm. but how does your work also fit into a global picture of racial capitalism mm -hmm. and the type of problems we see in the greater, well, both in places like Puerto Rico, within the United States, but you know, more generally globally? Yeah, so the, the first piece about the state, I mean, this is, this is, so by the state, of course, I mean the, thinking about the political economy in general, but the state, I'm thinking about the levels of public authority and the relationship mm -hmm. between the levels of public authority with pri to private capital. I think, I think in terms of the history, the writing the history of racial capitalism, thinking about the state disaggregating the varieties of state power and, and actually, actually working, breaking free from a kind of public-private kind of dichotomy. 
right? Especially when you talk about housing markets and debt, there's so much intertwined, it's, it's unclear if it's the state in per se or if it's private capital. So, so I think in terms of scholarship, we can think about the state in general, its relationship to private capital. But for me, I'm actually also interested in the politics of all of this, right? Because mm-hmm. we can think about the, the current movement for black lives and there's almost a kind of anti-status quality to the, to the politics there. And also a kind of relinquishing of struggle over controlling the levers of federal power, right, and state power. And I think that that's a mistake. I think that's a, that's a mistake. And so hopefully what my work tries to do is, one, insist on the centrality of the state and its relationship to private capital for thinking about racial inequality, thinking about public schools, public housing projects, where black people live, where they're unable to live, but also in terms of contemporary politics, right? Not, not relinquishing battles over the state to, to some other area. One, just on that point, I would also, I, would, I couldn't agree more. And I go back to one of the more famous things of Malcolm X by any means necessary. Mm-hmm. And people always take that to mean, or often take it to mean, the most militant means necessary. What he meant is what we need to do, need to figure out what we need to do to help black folks become liberated. And whether that means elections, whether that means, for example, in our period, Black leaders of unions think about how to use pension funds in a, in a progressive, aggressive way. There's a lot of levers that we should be making demands on since we put in the sweat equity to uh, make those demands. Absolutely. And, you know, this relates also to, to the other question you asked about the kind of global story and, and thinking in particular about Puerto Rico. Because what the question is, what are the alternatives right now, given the, the kind of debt crisis that Puerto Rico has been put through, right, kind of thinking about imposition? Um, so, so I found a report, July 2015, produced by Goldman Sachs. It was called Puerto Rico, Not Great, But Not Greece. And it's a phenomenal report, actually, because um, what they do is they actually really think through, they explain <coughs> potentially to their bondhold, to bondholders and creditors more generally, the structural relationship between Puerto Rico and the federal government on the one hand and Puerto Rico and its creditors on the other. And it sort of explains the why Puerto Rico can't declare Chapter 9 bankruptcy, uh, why it's different, for example, from Detroit, from Jefferson County, from Stockton, California, because Chapter 9 only applies to instrumentalities of states. Puerto Rico's not a state, so it can't go through that process. So it kind of explains that relationship. Then it thinks about the relationship between Puerto Rico and its creditors. It actually notes, quote, nearly all of Puerto Rico's debt is held outside of the territory, leaving creditors more politically disconnected than in many other states, end quote. This is July 2015. About a year later, of course, President Obama signed PROMESA, the Puerto Rico Oversight Management and Economic Stability Act, which creates an oversight board, right? Almost in a sense directly responding to the problems <laughs> that Goldman Sachs. Sachs had highlighted. And so um, in general, right, I mean, we, there's, there's so much analysis around this oversight board in terms of democracy and the lack thereof, right? The kind of usurping of democracy. But, but really, I think what's crucial now and what my work tries to do is if we begin with debt and we can think about racial governance through debt, we can think about how debt prompts issues and questions around democracy in ways that I'm not sure a kind of the framework of colonization actually gets at. Interesting. And so really what I mean by that is, as I see it, I see a great deal of connections between the debt woes of Detroit, of Stockton, California, Jefferson County, and Puerto Rico. 
But if we begin with the colony and colonization as the framework, that, how does that make sense of Detroit? Detroit is not a colony. So what I really am trying to do is just think about, we began with racial governance through debt. Um, it forces us to think about the, the kind of global questions, global connections. And so, you know, and also methodologically, a reason why I also highlighted the Goldman Sachs report is in this current moment, people are talking about, various folks are talking about the Puerto Rican debt crisis in largely moral terms. That, we, that these are American citizens, that the federal government should step in and, and forgive the debt, wipe out the debt. And I think what we should do is actually fuse a morality, uncompromising morality, to an analysis of political economy, mm -hmm. right? We have to understand who creditors are, how they wield power in very, very subtle ways. And, and I, I think, you know, what, what my, that's what my work tries to do. And also imagine alternatives, right? So what Goldman Sachs actually highlights they, they mentioned that the Federal Reserve could actually buy municipal debt maturing in less than six months. They see that as, they, they don't see that as very likely, but that's a possibility that Goldman Sachs actually identifies. But if we don't engage with the financial press, we can't see what else could be on the table. Exactly. And especially when we think about the late 1930s and late, early 40s, and really well into the early 60s, where you had people like Wright Patman and William Proxmire, these were people who called for direct, low-interest, federal loans to debtors, right, at minuscule interest rates, direct grants, basically cutting out bankers entirely from the financial equation. Of course, that's what scared bankers to death. And so... Because yes, excuse me, like on the payday loan, short-term loan market, yeah. which we have in the U.S., which is protected politically by certain interests. Right. Other countries, that's the post office. Yeah. And yes. you don't pay the same interest rate at the post yeah. office as yeah. you do on the corner in the hood. And we, and you know, in the United States, this happened. The Reconstruction Finance Corporation, the Public mm -hmm. Works Administration, in the late 1930s, early 40s, refinanced debt at lower interest rates. So that's an option as well. But I think we miss all of that if we don't engage with debt, finance, because a lot of times there's this, I'll never forget what one of my advisors, Richard White, mentioned. I was presenting my work at Stanford, and there was a lot of pushback. You know, people would say, why do we need to learn about finance more or less? Where's this? Where's that? And, you know, I, I defended my work. This is, this is my work, right? And, you know, what he told, told me afterwards, he said, you know, you're going to have to overcome the sentiment that finance is hard, right? People will say finance is hard. It's just confusing. But what he said, he was like, so is the study of race. So is the study of gender, right? These things aren't intuitive at all. And so I think what well, my work and, and what, you know, obviously what you're doing, Michael, and so many others, we're trying to take serious race, finance, capitalism in general, and that relationship and interrogate it, right? Not see one as the static backdrop for the other. One of, uh, in one of the chapters that I have coming out in the book that I'm trying to finish, I make the argument that, and I'm not the only one to make this argument, that one of the, the black left, the left more generally, one of its critical errors was never really learning the American political economy. We could tell you about the Chinese political economy, we could tell you about the political economy of Guinea-Bissau or Mozambique or Russia, but we could not tell you very much about the U.S. political economy and how it was changing. Mm -hmm. I don't know how you change people's lives for the better if you don't understand the basic political economy where you live. And, of course, to do that, that means you have to understand the global political yeah. economy. Absolutely. You know, I think I'm excited. I think, <coughs> I think things are changing. I really do. You could kind of look at 
the Agenda to Build Black Futures produced by BYP 100, and there's an engagement with racial capitalism. People are t- people are talking about political economy, and they're trying to they're trying to take the analysis there. And so I'm I'm optimistic. I really am. I'm really optimistic that there's a literacy happening, right? The literacy taking place. So my last question is: We've been talking a lot about our responsibility as as engaged scholars, and there's a lot of ways to be engaged scholars, obviously, and we're trying to explore some of those. What does this mean for how we need to change our disciplines or create new disciplines? You know, Michael, you, you, it, it could be that I'm so brand new to the faculty <laughs> that actually what I see before me is a is a kind of world of possibilities. That's good. And and to be perfectly honest, I have participated in the Cornell History of Capitalism Boot Camp in 2013, which allowed me to find community, to push back on some of the disciplinary norms, to, to push back on what it meant to study race, for instance. Uh, and, and since then, uh, when I was at Stanford, I created the Approaches to Capitalism Workshop, which says we're going to study capitalism by engaging also with anthropologists and sociologists. I mean, since now that I'm here, also trying to parlay with people to think about the relationship between race and capitalism. All of that to say is that I feel actually pretty liberated, not so much by the discipline itself, but basically by the community of folks who I've been able to build with to, to really, I, I don't necessarily feel shackled. And and again, it's, it's, it's because I think maybe I'm early on, <laughs> you know. No, but I think there's a lot. I think there's a lot to what you say. I mean, I think that's what the original people who did black studies, Chicano studies, gender yeah. studies did. They created their own communities, yeah, yeah. and to whatever degree necessary or possible, institutionalized them to some degree, with, yeah. which has some benefits and and, and some disadvantages. Mm, mm, and I think we're in a, a new period that where we see a lot of different experimental communities coming together to try to think through these questions, and maintaining flexibility in how people come together and work on projects and think through important questions, engage with people in the in the world to try to change it. It's all for the good. Absolutely. And, and also just thinking about the debates that need to be had, yep. right? I mean, it's one thing to rally around the idea of racial capitalism. But, you know, I'll never forget, uh, I guess about a month ago, you and I spoke over lunch and thinking about... Well, what's the utility of racial capitalism? What's the difference between racial capitalism and race and capitalism? What about the political economy of race and capitalism? I mean, I think it's necessary now Now that this, there's a kind of critical mass that seems to be rallying around the study of race and capitalism as a, as a critical area uh, of study and inquiry, now it's time for us to have some respectful debates, right? Absolutely right. Uh, without, without actually... Without, feeling the need to actually land on some point that we have a where we have a theory that holds any in everywhere. No, some approaches will be more useful for some questions than others. Sure. And as long as we can do this as you say respectfully and without too much acrimony, yeah. we'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> too much. Thank you very much. This um, has been great. Michael, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in. Please find us on racingcapitalism.com, that is racingcapitalism.com, to access the show notes describing this and all the other episodes, and stay up to date on the Racing Capitalism Project.